0: Grab your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Father, I pray that you would empower me to preach clearly your word to your people. That they would be edified, that they would be built up in their spirit, that you would be magnified and receive all the glory that is due your name. Father, every one of us deserves your wrath. None of us deserves to hold your word in our hand, let alone have your word in our heart. We humbly acknowledge this, Lord. are amazingly grateful for your love for us. Now, Lord, speak to us, instruct us, teach us. I pray this in Jesus' name. John wrote his gospel with one purpose in mind. We find that in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many of the signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Belief in Jesus. The very belief that was spoken of in verses 15 through 18 of this chapter was the intended purpose in writing this gospel. To make much of him. To reveal who and what he is to those that are being saved. You may think that this is a no-brainer. Why else would he write this gospel? The problem is, is that many Christians, real, blood-bought, elect sons of God, live not knowing the truth of their Savior. They live small insignificant lives because they serve a small insignificant God this is not the God that the Apostle John knew the God that he knew was magnificent was awesome and worthy of all praise and honor this is why he wrote his gospel so that we would believe and not just believe in some generic way that Jesus is Lord, but more specifically that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, who would consummate the betrothal to God. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God, in Him alone could the propitiation of sin be made. He wrote this gospel to contrast Jesus with all the shadows of the previous covenant, and to show him as the fulfillment and reality of those shadows, to contrast Jesus with every prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament, and all men for all eternity. It's easy for us to miss this when we chunk up the Bible into bite-sized pieces, and don't read it in the intended way that it was meant. That's where those helps that we keep talking about, the chapter breaks, the verse numbers, and those red letters all conspire against us in knowing Jesus for who he is. In fact, because of these man-imposed helps, there are many biblical scholars that claim that this section of Scripture shouldn't be here. They say that it's misplaced in the gospel and it doesn't flow with everything. They hold that it actually shouldn't even be explored because it's self-explanatory. I mean, it's pretty self-evident what it means. But they missed the logical process of John exalting Jesus as the Christ, giving him preeminence over all, and revealing the nature of the new covenant. John himself told us that all the events he included in his gospel were only selected events from the life of Christ. And each one of them has a very specific reason for being here. We know this because after each story, John explains the importance of that story to us. He did this in verse 11 of chapter 2 in telling us that the turning water into wine was the first of Jesus' signs which brought him glory. And because of it, his disciples believed in him. He did it again in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 2, and telling us that Jesus was the true temple that surpasses the earthly temple, which is what he meant when he said he would raise it in three days. And he did it again, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 3, as he explains the amazing love of God put on full display for all creation through the giving of his Son as a propitiation for man. And he does it again in our verses today. Exalting Christ above all who have ever been born. This is the only gospel that doesn't give the title, The Baptist, to John, the son of Zechariah. The Apostle John knew all about the son of Zechariah. knew all about the ministry that God had given him knew the importance of that ministry. But he saw the son of Zechariah just as he did all of the other Old Covenant signs. And he knew that while John's ministry may have called him to baptize in water, the true Baptist would soon be baptizing the elect of God with much more than just water. And John the son of Zechariah, knew that he was merely the warm-up act for the main event, that his baptism was merely a shadow of the reality that was to come. When people came to him thinking he might be the Christ, he told them, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Apostle Paul saw this to be true as well. In Acts 19.4, he explained that John's baptism was one of repentance in preparation to believe in the one that was coming after him. And that one is Jesus, the Christ. Verses 22 and 20 through 24 are a practical transition for us. They provide background details to this story. This, too, is a common feature of John's gospel. He often, when moving from one point or time, uses transitory paragraphs. These paragraphs provide details concerning the situation or account that he is about to tell us. Look for paragraphs that begin with words like, now, John 4, 1, John 5, 2, or after this, John 6, 1, or John 3:22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. This transition is an interesting one, because in it we're not only given information about Jesus and his disciples, but John also brings John the Baptist and his disciples back into the story. This transition directs our focus on the last of the Old Testament prophets, John, and the last of the Old Covenant signs, his baptism. John the Baptist was an extraordinary man, called by God before his conception, who dedicated himself to living the life of a Nazarene and fulfilling the office of of Elijah, in making straight the path of the coming Messiah, he was seemingly fearless, taking on the religious system, calling the people to repentance. Prior to John's ministry, God had been silent with this people for over 300 years, with the last words given to them by the prophet Malachi, which said, Remember the law of my servant Moses the statutes and rules that I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day Yahweh comes, and I will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 300 years of silence, and then John the Baptist. Why John? What was the purpose of God sending him? This seems like it's an easy thing to answer. But I think that if we that, uh, but I think that the ministry of John the Baptist, or I'm sorry, if we think the ministry of John the Baptist was only to call people to repentance and baptize them, I think that we've really missed something. And if his ministry was only to call people to repentance and holiness, then why didn't he just point them to the law? There was already a religious system in place to deal with sin and to make atonement. So why was John sent to baptize? The answer is that the promised new covenant was about to be inaugurated by God. The full revelation of all the previous covenants was going to be fulfilled. From the beginning of mankind, God had promised that he would make atonement for the sin of man. Directly upon the hills of man's fall, right after he had separated himself from God forever, God revealed his preordained plan of salvation to man. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Adam and Eve knew what this promise was. That's why the birth of male children was so important to them. They were always looking for the Messiah. The same thing with all the generations after them. They were always looking forward to the salvation process. From God longing for the reconciliation with God John was sent to prepare these people for that Savior the promised Christ was coming and as we look at these transitory verses 22 through 24 we need to be cautious in our understanding of them We need to be clear concerning what the disciples of Jesus were doing when they were baptizing people. For we're told in chapter 4 that Jesus didn't baptize. It was his disciples that did. And if we're not careful, we will think that they were baptizing people unto salvation. Pre-death, burial, and resurrection. And if we thought that, we'd be wrong. Nor were they re-baptizing the people that had come to John. They were doing the same thing that John was doing, preparing the bride for the coming consummation with her now-arrived groom. Verses 25 through 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples over a Jew and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, Who is he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness? Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So, having given us this transition away from the events of chapter 2 and 3 and verses 22 and 24, John can now focus on the events within this account. He does this very often within the gospel. You can spot these things pretty easy because he uses a timestamp to begin them. Here he uses one of his faves. Now. These verses are setting up some of the last recorded words of John the Baptist prior to his arrest. And in them, we are presented with a situation that posed a real problem for John. At least in the eyes of his disciples. Their conversation with this unnamed man must have raised questions concerning the validity of John's baptism as it stood against Jewish laws and customs, especially in light of the fact that the disciples of Jesus were now baptizing as well. John made it clear that he wasn't the Christ. He didn't even claim the office of Elijah, but would only say about himself, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John's disciples were just like us, and we are just like them. They had plans, goals, and maybe even a vision about where they would end up. But their focus was all on the temporal and not on the eternal, even though they worked in the ministry which should have been directing people's focus to the eternal. They had missed the message of their teacher and allowed ministry to become their mistress. They had become more enthralled with the one that was heralding the coming Messiah rather than the Messiah himself. These dangers did not end when the Baptist lost his head. They still continue to this day. But John's response to them stands in stark contrast to their complaint. Verses 27 through 30. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He was not jealous, he wasn't envious, and in fact, He was rejoicing over the very events that were causing his disciples all this anxiety. Their focus was on people, on numbers, the size of the crowds that were being drawn to John, and the size of the crowds that were being drawn to Jesus. They could see where they had once been part of the greatest show in town, their preeminence was fading. The strange clothes and diet that once had marked John's ministry and set it apart seemingly had lost its appeal. And what was worse, at least in their minds, is that his message had been hijacked by the disciples of Jesus. But look at the way that John responded to his disciples. He didn't address the issue that they had brought to him, he went straight to the heart of the matter which is a matter of the heart. They thought that John's ministry was based on John. His answer that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven revealed their misplaced allegiance to him, illuminated their desire for self-exaltation and their love for ministry. That all was from God was a truth that they had either failed to grasp or remember. We need to hear this truth just as much as they did. Who do you think my ministry is based upon? Who's at the heart of your ministry? All that is given to us is from God and it's all too often forgotten. We get proud of our accomplishments, our business acumen, our physical strength, our mental agility, or our good reputation. Perhaps we're just hypocritical enough not to actually say these things out loud, but inwardly, they're true. And we elevate and are enthralled by men who merely proclaim God we are nothing more than servants of God. We fawn over them, make way too much of them, sometimes almost placing them at that place of deity, forgetting that they are or were nothing more than mortal men with clay feet. And anything of any value that any of them ever did all was a gift from God. And in fact, everything that they ever did, everything that they ever taught, they tainted with sin. Even the best of these men, Augustus, Calvin, Luther, Whitfield, Wesley, Spurgeon, Tozer, Ravenhill, Sprawl, Zachariah, Piper, are all sinners. All are nothing more than the heralds of God's truth. And every one of them were all wrong or are wrong concerning some aspect of theology. We fail to acknowledge that every ability that any of us have is a gift from God. None of these things have we produced within ourselves. At best, we are merely using the gifts that God has given us. We are building upon the foundation that he has laid. But most importantly, if we're called by God as his own, if we are his elect, then everything that we do should be done for the glory of God alone and not ourselves John had said that he'd been sent from God. The word that he uses for sent is translated from the Latin into English as vocation. This is how John saw the command from God to call people to repentance and then baptize them as his vocation. For your younger kids, that means job. This is why John did not fold up his tent and retire when Jesus showed up. Why he continued to baptize and call people to repentance in preparation for the one that was to come. It was the vocation that God had given him. We who hold to a reformed understanding of the word should say the same thing about our lives. No matter what we do physically, This is the vocation that God has given us, at least for this moment in time. But sadly, all too often, we don't see our vocation as our calling, but merely as a means to an end. We bemoan our station, we long for something better and aren't content with what the Lord has given us. We envy others, covet what others have, or just as bad think that the Lord is not being fair to us in the lot that we're stuck with. This was a sin that the disciples of John found themselves being consumed by, and John would have none of it. He knew what his calling was, and because of that, he knew what their calling was. And he was content with his vocation, with his calling, with his job, not because it was fulfilling to him or because he received accolades or notoriety from it, but because it was from God. And he was serving the purpose of him who gave him that calling. He tries once again to refocus their attention back to what really matters when he tells them what they must have heard a thousand times before. He is not the Christ. He is just a forerunner to the Christ. John heralds that coming when he points to Christ and saying, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. The complaint that all were going to Christ was for his disciples a point of contention. John saw it as an outward manifestation of the truth that he had been revealing. The Messiah had come and the bride was being drawn to him. We are told in verses such as Jeremiah 2-2 and Isaiah 54, 4-6, that God had betrothed the people to himself. This was not a temporary betrothal that could be annulled. For God had said through the prophet Hosea, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy, Hosea 2.19. But the Jews had made a religion out of God. They had developed a set of rules surrounding his covenants. To them, the betrothal of God was not in righteousness or justice, but but was fulfilled by men in keeping their version of the law. This proved that their version of this marriage was no more valid than what is now termed gay marriage. God was not their groom, and they were not his bride. John stood in stark contrast to that religion. His ministry pointed to the truth of how the covenants between God and man were actually fulfilled. God had betrothed the people to himself in righteousness and in justice. His righteousness. His justice. In steadfast love and in mercy. His love. His mercy. God was the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. He was the bridegroom. The ministry of John was a herald that something new was happening, that the old covenant was about to change, and the relationship through mediation was about to end. The offices of prophet, priest, and king were shadows that would be fully realized in the prophet, in the priest, and in the king, who was the Messiah. Unlike his disciples, John rejoiced that the bride was going to the groom. That's why he was able to say, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He then utters what is probably the most famous line of his life. He must increase and I must decrease. The Apostle John now does what he's done before in his gospel. He breaks into the account with an explanation of it. What follows are not the spoken words by John the Baptist, any more than the verses 16 through 21 are the spoken words of Christ. They are clarifiers from the Apostle John, and this time he makes three statements concerning the preeminence of Christ. The first statement is, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from of heaven is above all. Verse 31. John the Baptist was merely the herald of the coming king. The, mer- the herald may have brought the good news, but he was not the good news. He wouldn't be celebrated for his heroics. He would not be elevated above his station. He was merely a servant to the king. This is how we're supposed to look at John the Baptist. This is how he saw himself and how he desired to be seen. This is also an explanation of why John must decrease and Jesus must increase. John the Baptist proclaimed this truth. The Apostle John wrote this truth. We may speak this truth. The prophets, including John, may have spoken this truth, but they all, just like us and every other human, are of the earth, and we all speak in earthly ways, which is to say we are at but we are all at best secondhand witnesses to the truth we proclaim a truth concerning god that we know to be true the truth of his gospel but we know it only through an imparted understanding this stands in stark contrast to jesus he was certainly mortal he was human but he wasn't tainted by sin and when he spoke on any subject he spoke with authority we may have been given the word of God but he is the word of God and when he speaks it's revelation first hand revelation it's a telling of what he knows completely Intimately, fully. And for that reason, unlike the all of John 3.16, the all in these verses does mean all. It is completely inclusive of everyone. No one is left out of it. John uses that same word all twice in this exclamation just to make sure that we get this fact. He meant For us to get this truth. And this all is merely a reiteration of that truth he told us in verse 3 of chapter 1, when he said, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This brings us to the second statement that he makes, verses 32 through 35. He, speaking of Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives this testimony. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. In these verses, John contrasts Jesus with all prophets, including John the Baptist. John told us the purpose in writing this gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, that we might believe. But Jesus was clear about why he came. He told us in chapter 18, verse 37, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The truth of God, as revealed in Jesus, was the purpose for Christ. And he'll tell us in chapter 16, because he is the truth, only he can give us his spirit, the spirit of truth. He says, when the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. There is also an important truth for us to realize from these verses. There are Christians who... Who, in reading the stories from the Old Testament, long for the relationship that Abraham had with God. They long to have the intimacy that Moses had with God, or they long to be given the heart that David had been given by God. How great it would be to actually hear the voice of God! But their relationship with God, no matter how intimate that it may seem to us, is far inferior to the relationship that any and all that are of the new covenant have with God. They may have heard the voice of God once in a while, but we have been given the complete revelation of the Lord through his word. And we can hear his voice now every time we crack it open. And the prophets were given a measure of the spirit as God deemed prudent for them. For us, Jesus has given us his spirit without measure. We can know God more intimately than any man could prior to the new covenant. John has made it clear that no one can compare to Jesus and that he is the only person that we should ever fawn over. But there's another reason John wanted to get this to our heads. That Jesus is the creator of all things. Only Jesus could give us firsthand testimony of God, of heaven, of the Spirit, of the kingdom, something that he freely did. And what did man do with this testimony? He tells us in verse 32 we, in our free will, rejected it. All of us. No one received his testimony, no one. This means everyone for all time, including the Apostle John, including Abraham, Moses, and David. Here, once again, is the indictment against man. The truth of God was revealed by God, and no one received his testimony. He didn't match up to the God that we had made, the God that would elevate us to his throne. His revelation was so offensive to us that we rejected it. This brings us to the third statement by John concerning Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Verse 36. This third statement is a contrast. In fact, it's a multiplied contrast. It contrasts the people of verse 32 who did not receive his testimony with those that did, who received eternal life. But the main contrast that John is making is between all humanity. And Jesus. Jesus was a man, but he is separate from all other men. He stands on one side of the courtroom of eternity, and all others, whoever live, stand on the other side. The reason for this is that he alone is the Son of God. He alone is God. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved other than Jesus. This is what sets him apart and contrasts him with all other man and all other man-made religions. This sets up John's last contrast, his last separation within humanity, an eternal and irrevocable separation, not based on race, sex, age or anything else save one question. What did you do with my son? Those that believe in the son, who see him as beautiful, wonderful, have eternal life. They are moved to his side of the courtroom. Those that do not remain with the majority of humanity. They will be charged with their crimes against God, not having eternal life in the Son. In fact, we're told they won't even see life. But we need to pay careful attention to the manner in which John words what happens to those who do not obey Jesus. If we're ever to understand the preeminence of Christ. He doesn't say that those that reject Jesus will just be condemned. He doesn't say that they will not enter into life. He says that they will not see life. Belief in Christ, in this Jesus, is more than a mental nod in a generic way to a Jesus that's like a genie in a bottle, more than the ruling king that he is. Belief in Jesus is marked by one thing in these verses obedience to his word. Not sincerity of heart, not conviction of thought, not tears, not walking an aisle, no work or anything other than obedience to his word. The word that was given him by his father the word that testifies that God is true. This is evidence of the new birth spoken of at the beginning of this chapter. The new birth that is brought on not by the will of man, not by human efforts, not by the flesh, but only by the spirit. This is the standard that is given us by God For those that are truly His. This is the evidence that we can look for for those that call themselves by His name. Are they obedient to Him? We shouldn't look for perfection in their obedience because that will never be attained, but we should expect efforts towards obedience. The Father has given all things to Jesus. Jesus has given us his spirit in full measure. Through him, we are able to say that Jesus is Lord. And through him, we are being sanctified. Where Jesus increases as we decrease. We need to get that Jesus is not just the door into heaven. That he's not just the path to righteousness and eternal life. He is life. And outside of him, there is no life. This is where so many of us go off the rails. We view the salvation of Jesus as a means to an end. And even if that end is heaven... I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to accept Jesus. If that's the reason that we come to Christ, we are not coming to Christ. This thinking, this viewpoint is diametrically opposed to the truth, the truth of who Jesus is. He is not the means to an end. He is the end. He's the prize, the gift. Not the wrapping around the prize. But because we worship a small Jesus and think of him as less than he is. When we read the scriptures or hear a sermon, we think, what does this text or sermon mean to me? When we read scripture and think that the story is about the men that's contained within it. When we read about them all too often, we just compare ourselves to them. We'll chastise them or glorify them or place ourselves at the center of that story. This is wrong reading a scripture. This is nothing more than finding value in the wrapping of the prize and disregarding the prize or gift altogether. This is what had happened to the disciples of John. This was the error that John the Baptist and the Apostle John both wanted to guard us against. To be sure, religion and religious things do have value and serve a purpose as long as they point us to and exalt Jesus as Lord. But our view of Christ is so small. He is of such little worth to us that when we read that true belief is marked by obedience. We start looking at ourselves. We start making mental checklists in our minds and our hearts, trying to determine what obedience looks like. How much obedience do I have to have to truly be obedient? We do want salvation. We want to believe that we believe. But instead of focusing on the one in who there is life, we focus on ourselves. And as an example, I love my wife, and because I do, there are things that I do and things that I don't do. But if my focus is on the list of the do's and don'ts, my love is really for me. When I'm truly in love with my wife, I don't care about the things that I don't get to do or that I do do. I don't care if I don't get to see other people or go hang out at bars. I don't care that I get to bring my wife flowers. That obedience part comes naturally, easily, because I love her. This is the same with Christ. There is one final point. And one final contrast that I want to point out to you. Let me read verse 36 once more. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Here's the point. We're told that outside of the mediation of Christ, the wrath of God is already set upon us. There's not going to be a heavenly courtroom where you'll be able to give them the chance to defend yourself or hire a team of lawyers to try and convince God of why you're innocent. It's a decided verdict. There is no appeal, no stay of execution. This wrath is certain. If you can escape death, then you can stop worrying about the wrath of God. And don't discount the wrath of God. This is the final contrast. We are meant to see the wrath of God contrasted with the Son of God. Jesus is all kindness, all goodness. He's all love, mercy, and grace. He's the author of them. He's greater than them; they flow through him. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. This is not a casual love. If you want to see a physical representation of what this love looks like, you have no further than a look than at His creation. All of His creation is beautiful; it's intricate. It's wonderfully and amazingly made. And all of his creation was made out of just the overflow of the love found within the triune God. Just the overflow of it. Here is where the final contrast is realized. The wrath of God is not a tantrum thrown by a three-year-old. It's not lashing out in pain or anger. It is the just punishment of sin, righteously and mercilessly executed by a God who has not put any less thought, detail, or strength into his wrath than he did into his creation. His wrath is as righteous as his goodness, As full and robust as his mercy, as complex, as intricate as his creation, and as eternal as his love is for his Son. There is no greater sin against God than to disregard his beloved Son. Can you see how far we have come from realizing the worth, the beauty, of the one that we claim to believe in? The more that we see the beauty of Christ, the more that we are amazed at his love and his strength, the more our hearts realize the depth of his mercy and grace, the more we will understand just how terrible the wrath of God is and why it caused his son to sweat drops of blood at the very thought of it. It is no small thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Sinner, flee the wrath of God. You stand condemned for your sin against this God. You may think that you're not a sinner because I don't smoke or I don't drink. I'm not having sex outside of marriage. I don't even swear. I'm not a sinner. This makes you nothing more than a self-righteous sinner. You are separated from the love of God. You are an enemy of God and outside of his family, outside of his love. And don't think because your life is easy, good, or things just seem to go your way that you are his. More often than not, that's evidence that you aren't His. Can you see the righteousness of God? Can you see the treason with your own heart and not acknowledging Him as Lord and not loving His Son and in not obeying Him? Then there's hope. Run. Flee to the open And loving arms of Jesus the Christ he will save you from your sin and from the wrath of his father from his wrath he is Jesus the Savior and saving is what saviors do saints can you still see your need for a Savior? Do you see the filthy rags of of sin still hanging from you? Can you see the awful truth of the righteous wrath of a just God? Can you not see the cost paid by your hero and Savior for you? We have Him Heaven is his home. We have been given him. John wrote this gospel so that you might believe. He knew the value of Jesus. He was so enthralled by him that his life was marked by obedience. But all he saw was love. Love for the son that he believed in. That radiated true life, the life to come. This is what belief in Christ is. Saints, let us be diligent in seeking God. Be diligent in praying for eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that beat in tune with our wonderful Savior. Saints, Exalt the risen and reigning king by exalting in him, by thinking of him, reveling in his goodness, basking in his faithfulness. Because the more you exalt in the benefits of Christ, the more you exalt Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, your word reveals to us how lacking we are. And yet, it also gives us hope because you have given us your spirit. Without measure, we can know you. Father, reveal yourself to us through your word may we fall deeply in love with you we have to trust in you to give us this heart Lord because we can't do it on our own thank God that you will give us this heart You've given us your son, the most prized possession you have. And if this is the truth, then the truth is, Lord, that you will give us that heart. Thank you for the gift of your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.